Matthew 22, 23 to 33. You can find that in your pew Bibles on page 23 in the New Testament. Matthew 22, 23 through 33. The same day the Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies, having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So too the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, would you please come and show us your glory and your goodness, your steadfast love, your everlasting love, O Lord. Father, I come as a broken sinner standing before broken sinners. I come as one who doesn't deserve to be here, doesn't deserve to speak. We come as those who don't deserve to be here or to hear. But you are abounding in mercy. And you take the broken and the weak, that which is made out of clay, and Father, you bring glory and honor to yourself and to your Son through us. So that is our prayer. Honor yourself, exalt your Son, and lift your people. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I've chosen as my sermon title for today's message, God isn't for dead people. God isn't for dead people. And I have chosen as my goal for this message that we not only be astonished at our Lord's teaching like the crowds were here in Matthew 22, but that we believe our Lord's teaching and celebrate it with all of our hearts. I want us to see that God isn't for dead people and that that is the greatest news ever. Let's begin, as we look at this text, keep your Bibles open, let's begin with a quick overview. We, we need to always make sure that we're studying Scripture in its context and not reading into it. We just need to begin with the text. So let's begin with a quick overview of this narrative to make sure we get what's going on here. We notice in verse 23 
that the same day the Sadducees came to initiate this conversation with Jesus. Now, a careful Bible student, like we should all try to be, will notice time references like that, and will try to figure out why they matter. This is the same day as something else happened, and what that something else that happened was, was the conversation that we heard about last week from verses 15 through 22, where another group of leaders, the Pharisees, a very conservative, hyper-moralistic party in Jewish life at that time, they came to Jesus and tried to get him to say some things that would have gotten him into trouble either with the Roman leaders of his day or with his popular fan base. And Matthew tells us that once Jesus was done with that conversation, essentially he turned around and there's another group of people ready to talk to him now. And I believe that the reason Matthew notes the same day is because he wants us to understand that Jesus is under heavy fire now. We are coming near to the end of Jesus' life and the antagonism and the opposition of his enemies is becoming more aggressive, more assertive. If you read the text in what follows, you find out that the the Passover was about to happen and so there were hundreds of thousands of Jewish folks that were in Jerusalem and the Pharisees and the Sadducees were seeing the impact of Jesus' ministry and that they were drawn followers away from them and they were risking Roman anger and they wanted to put an end to the Jesus problem. And so they kept asking him questions to try to trap him, to try to ensnare him. Now what's ironic is that the Sadducees, who were part of this conversation, and the Pharisees from last week's conversation didn't get along well at all with each other. They hated each other in part because the Sadducees were theologically and morally liberal. They didn't believe in the supernatural. They didn't believe in the resurrection from the dead. They they would have fit very nicely with the smug, elitist, intellectual community of our day. They would have made great university professors of the sort and of the kind that are well-known and well-established throughout our national colleges and universities, even religious ones, men and women standing in places of authority and teaching who mock the faith, who mock the resurrection, who mock the supernatural. They, these Sadducees, made fun of, they ridiculed the idea of miracles, especially the ultimate miracle, which is the resurrection from the dead. And so these Sadducees came to Jesus with a theological question having to do with that very idea or truth, the resurrection, life after death, the very thing that Matthew tells us they do not believe in, they come asking him about that. And so we find, beginning in verse 23, this rather strange question and scenario that they paint for him. The same day Sadducees came to him, verse 23, who say that there is no resurrection and they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow 
and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died in the resurrection, therefore, of the seven. Whose wife will she be? For they all had her. Now the Sadducees approached Jesus with what is frankly an absurd question a far-fetched question that to my eye and to my mind seems pretty obviously designed to mock and to be sarcastic. They think that they've got a question, they've got a riddle that will make Jesus look silly. They're trying to paint him into a corner. The, The question runs something like this. A man dies, leaves a widow. They have no children to carry on the family name and inheritance. And so, in accordance with ancient Hebrew custom, his brother steps in and agrees to marry the widow to produce children so that they can carry on the family name. But his brother dies before any children come along, and so another brother steps in, and this happens seven times in all. This whole scenario is rooted uh, in the Old Testament practice just like that, that in order to uh, advance the family name, there were times when a brother or brother, uh, a close relative would step in and marry a widow and bear children in behalf of the brother who had died. Now, here's the conundrum, here's the riddle that the Pharisee, or the Sadducees tried to raise, if there's a resurrection from the dead, then whose wife is this going to be in heaven since they all had her? And if she was wife to all of them, to which one will she be wife in the afterlife? Or will she have seven husbands, which of course cannot possibly be good because God doesn't like polygamy. And so you get the sense that they have got this gotcha question. They have raised an absurd scenario to try to make belief in the resurrection look absurd. And my friends, there is a lesson for us right here, right now. Unbelief seldom resorts to reason. Unbelief usually resorts to mockery and absurdities. Here's an example. Someone comes up to you with a little bit of a smirk on their face. And they say, if God is all-powerful and he can do anything, can he create a rock that is too big for him to lift? You ever had that asked you? You know, they little smirk on their face like, they got you. They got you. What people don't realize, of course, is that the question assumes two things that could never be true and two things that Christians don't claim to be true. We don't claim that God can do anything. In fact, we assert that there are some things God can't do. God cannot lie. God cannot sin. God cannot break His promises. And God cannot be in competition with Himself. And so this whole idea that, you know, God's just sitting around and saying, you know what, 
all right, let's, let's have a competition with ourselves. I'll try to come up with a rock that, that, that we can't lift. That, the idea that God will test himself in that way is a violation of the law of God. The scriptures tell us, thou shalt not put the Lord your God to a test. So the fact of the matter is this whole scenario could never happen because there are some things God cannot do. But the person who comes to you with a question has that smirk on his face or her face thinking that he or she has got you. And have there ever been times when you felt got? I just want us to be aware that some of the questions people ask us are riddles and trick questions where people are not really genuinely looking for the answers. They're trying to trap you. They're trying to mock you. Sometimes it sounds very sincere. People ask, if God is all-powerful and all-loving, how can he allow human suffering? And those that are skeptical and cynical ask that question with a smirk on their face. But what they fail to understand is that God is all-powerful and all-loving and all-holy and all-wise and all-good. And because he is all of that, he will never be comprehended by us. And there are going to be things that happen in his world that we can't understand. And, and if we could understand, uh, then it would mean that his ways are not higher than our ways and his thoughts are not higher than our thoughts. And the fact that there is this question, how can an all-powerful, all-loving God allow suffering? The fact that there is such a question as that should not surprise us. We should actually expect it. If God is this infinite being and I'm this little tiny ant then I should expect that God is going to do things I can't comprehend when people ask these kinds of questions please be aware they think they've got you but they haven't now Jesus Jesus on this occasion Though he realizes this is a trap and though he realizes this is a gotcha moment or they think it is, he actually answers their question. And he does so in three parts. First, he rebukes their ignorance of Scripture and of God's power. Verse 29, But Jesus answered them, You are wrong. Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of of God. For all of their learning, they did not know what God had said in His Word, and they did not know what God could do with His power. They had a deficient understanding of Scripture, which in fact, from cover to cover almost, teaches the resurrection to come. And they had a deficient faith in God's power, for whom the resurrection would be an incredibly easy thing to do. Remember Paul, later on, Paul is standing before the Jewish leaders of his time in Acts 26 and verse 8, and he asked them this question, why is it thought so incredible by you that God raises the dead? Why does this baffle you? Why does this seem unreasonable to you? Why is this so hard 
to believe. We know there is the, a God because there is no way anything would exist unless God exists to create it. We know there is a God and we know He must be supremely powerful and wise and good and able to have created the galaxies and all that is and life and all the beauty and all the wonder of it all. We know there is a God who has done all of this. Why is it so hard to believe in the resurrection? This, is, this isn't hard, Paul says. And, and Jesus says, this was their problem. They had a deficient faith in the power of God. So Jesus says, you Sadducees are wrong on two parts. You're wrong in your view of Scripture and your understanding of Scripture. You're wrong in your view of the power of God. And then he proceeds to correct their assumptions. Notice verses 29 and 30. But Jesus answered them, you are wrong because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For, for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. What Jesus is doing here is he, he is correcting their flawed premise. They, they assumed that the resurrection meant that people will go on married to the people that they were married to here on earth. And Jesus says, no, you're wrong. That's not what the scriptures say. That's not taught anywhere in the Bible. And in fact, when you stop to think about the reasons why God created marriage in the first place, so that we could be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, Genesis 1, so that man and woman together in complementary roles and responsibilities could tend the earth and have children, Genesis 2, and so that we could be partners as male and female in marriage for the kingdom of God, Genesis 2, and so that we could be a foreshadowing and a living dramatization of the love of Christ for his church, Ephesians 5. All of those reasons for marriage will no longer exist when heaven comes. And so marriage will end. You, we won't need Ephesians 5, the the love relationship between a husband and a wife to be a picture of the love relationship between Christ and the church. You know why you won't need that picture? Because you're going to be living the reality. <laughs> because in heaven, we will be the bride of Christ. In heaven, we will enjoy His love forever. So there's, there's no need for the picture anymore. We have pictures on our wall. We have pictures in our wallet or in our in our phones, in our cell phones. We have pictures because well, you, you can't carry the reality with you everywhere you go. But when, the rea when, when I'm in the same room with Galen, I'm not looking at a picture of Galen. When I'm in the same room with Galen, I'm looking at Galen. When we're in heaven, we're not going to look at the picture of Christ's love. We're going to look at Christ and enjoy Christ. And Jesus says to these Sadducees, you, you've You've got this wrong. In heaven, there's not going to be marriage as we now know it. Now, I do not want this to stumble any of you. I, I don't want anyone to walk away with the idea that what this means is that we will not know in heaven 
those or each other or those that we have loved and had special relationships with here on earth. I believe we will know one another and we will know who we were married to and we will know the place that we have all had in each other's life and that will be part of the joy of it all. Say, Tim, how do you, why do you say that you believe that? Why well, say it? Because in Matthew 8, we're told that the day is going to come in heaven when we sit down and eat with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and that implies that we're going to know who Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are. Or we have Matthew 17 when Jesus is transfigured on the mountain and who appeared with him. Who did the disciples see with Jesus? So Moses and Elijah, and they recognized him. Let us not forget what we saw in 1 Thessalonians 4 recently, that when Jesus comes back, we will all be caught up together with those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. And we will always be with the Lord and with each other in glory. Or there is 2 Corinthians chapter 1 in verse 14 where Paul says to the Corinthians, listen to this, on the day of our Lord Jesus, on the day of our Lord Jesus, on that day when we see Jesus and we are with Him, on the day of our Lord Jesus, he says to the Corinthians, you will boast of us and we will boast of you. Think about the implications of that. Paul is saying that in heaven and in the presence of the Lord, we're going to look at each other. We who have known each other in this life, and we're going to boast in each other. I'm here because of you. I'm here because of Jesus, but Jesus used you in my life. Oh, thank you for, for being a friend in this life that helped me to make it all the way to that life. Thank you for your encouragement. Thank you for your comfort. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your friendship. Thank you for your love. We're going to boast in each other on that day. Once we are done, and I don't know how many millions of years this will take, but once we are done with that soul-satisfying, thirst-quenching gaze upon the face of Christ, once, we, once, we, once, once our hearts have been filled, then I think we're going to have a long line of family and friends waiting for their turn. And it's going to be the biggest back-slapping, high-fiving, celebrating, hugging, embracing moment that you can imagine. And we're going to think, we're going to reflect, and we're going to look around, and we're going to see, oh, there's that loved one who's gone on before. And there's that other one, and there's that other one, and names are going to come back, and we're going to recognize the role and place we have had in each other's life. Jesus is not saying we're not going to know each other in heaven, or we're not going to know our spouses in heaven. He is simply saying that marriage as we know it is not going to exist in heaven. And then Jesus provides a plain declaration of truth here these words in verse 31. Having rebuked them for their error, for their false assumptions and understanding, he says, and as for the resurrection 
of the dead. Since you're bringing this up, Sadducees, since I know you're trying to trick me, uh, and you're not really interested in this truth, but as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. Now Jesus here is quoting from Exodus 3 and verse 6, where God speaks to Moses from the burning bush, and word for word, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And there's two huge things we need to see in these words of our Lord. First of all, the meaning of the language. When God says to us, I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. And put your name in there. I am the God of Tim Shorey. I am the God of Bill Davis. I am the God of Rick Butler. I am the God of this person and that person. When God says that, that's the language of covenant commitment. That's what God says when He wants to declare, when He wants to declare those who are His. All throughout Scripture, I will be their God and they will be my people. That's the language of covenant. It's the language of God's solemn but love-filled commitment to us. It's like us in a wedding ceremony saying, the, the husband saying, I am your husband, you are my bride. It is a covenant vow. It's a covenant commitment. It is God saying of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I have pledged my love and my faithfulness and my enduring devotion to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am their God and they are my people. That's the meaning of the language. Now notice the tense of the verb. He does not say, I was the God of Abraham or Isaac or Jacob. He says what? I Say it. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Why does that matter? It matters because the people, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, had died hundreds of years before that, which means that even though they had died, they must still be alive. In what meaningful way could he possibly be their God in the present tense if their existence was only in the past tense? So Jesus is saying, these men did not once belong to God way back when. They were right then still belonging to God. It is not that God was their God, he is their God, and for God to be their God right then, they themselves had to be right then. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. There's a logic here all by itself that is flawless logic. And then to make sure that they got the point, Jesus adds, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. If he were the God only of the dead, those who have died and stayed dead, then in fact he would not be God, would he? 
God, by definition, must be the one who has supreme and ultimate power and authority in his universe. And if there is anything or anyone who has more power or authority than God does, then that thing is God. If death cannot be overturned, if death is final, if death is stronger than God is, then God ceases to be God. If there is no resurrection from the dead, then that means the death of God has happened. And death is God in its place, His place. But if God is God, there must be a resurrection by which He proves His absolute uncontested sovereignty over all things, including the last enemy, which is death itself. So Jesus is answering their question, my friends, with a profound and majestic declaration about the being of God. He is the ever-living God who gives to us as His creatures life everlasting. And Jesus is asserting and He's promising and He's guaranteeing a resurrection to eternal life for all who believe and by implication a resurrection to eternal death or suffering for those who do not believe. As we look at this text, can I suggest to you that Jesus is offering us three things. First of all, He's offering every one of us a motive to believe. A motive to believe. As it is put by Jesus over in John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, Jesus says there, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming, an hour is coming, when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice. The hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus says the hour is coming. The hour has been appointed. It is fixed. And the clock is ticking. And the hour is coming when they will all, everyone in the tomb, will hear His commanding voice. And with that voice, they will be raised from the dead and they will be raised either to eternal life or to eternal judgment. The hour is coming. Do you know why so many people don't believe in the afterlife? It's because they don't want to believe in the afterlife. Because as soon as you believe in the afterlife, you realize that everything in this life counts. One idea that absolutely unnerves human beings is the idea that his words, that their thoughts, that their actions actually do have significance. We often think, you know, people want significance. I'm not sure they do. Not sure they do. It is much easier to live in this life for the things you want to do if you believe eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. 
But if you have to think, eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we stand before the throne of the living God, then your life's going to be different, isn't it? You see, the resurrection means there's significance to every single thing you've ever said, ever thought, and ever done. And we must hear His voice today. Because if we wait to hear His voice on that day, it will be too late for us. So Jesus today says to us, chapter 11 of Matthew, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavily burdened, and I will give you rest. Come unto me, and I'll forgive you all those sins. I'll pardon you. My blood was spilled so that you could be cleansed and washed, and my, my righteousness will cover you. Believe in me now. Hear my voice now. And then on that day when you hear my voice, you will not respond in terror. You will respond in joy and anticipation because that will be your calling home to glory. Jesus offers these words as a motive for us to believe. And if you've never believed, you need to know. In the words of Hebrews, it's, it's appointed unto man, unto woman, unto child, once to die. And after that, the judgment. You need to believe. Don't be in denial about the afterlife. Don't be in denial that there is significance and consequence to your words and actions. There are. But if you repent of your sins, and if you trust in Christ, He will cover them all and receive you home. Secondly, Jesus is offering us a security to enjoy. A security to enjoy. God is a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the God of every single genuine believer in this place here this afternoon. I have pledged my covenant love and faithfulness to each and every one of you, God says. And when God makes a promise of love to us, nothing, nothing, not even death can break that covenant. Here is security. Solomon says that between a husband and a wife, there is a love that is as strong as death. The Scriptures tell us that between God and His people, there is a love that is stronger than death. And so we hear the words of Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things if God is for us? Who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation Answer the question for me. Shall tribulation separate us from the love of Christ? No. Shall distress separate us from the love of Christ? No. Shall persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword 
separate us from the love of Christ. No. As it is written, Paul writes, for your sake we are being killed. All the day long we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure, Paul says, I am sure, I am sure that neither death nor life, no angels, no rulers, no things present, no things to come, no powers, no height, no depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul, did you say that not even death, not even death can separate us from the Father's love? Yes, Paul says, that's what I said. I am sure of it. I am sure of it. Those who die in the faith of Jesus don't really die. They go right on living. They just live at a different address. They live in the presence and in the love of God. And that assurance and that confidence, that Paul-like, I am sure, is what God offers to us all. So when Jesus says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is saying, I have pledged my covenant love. And not even death can separate these three that I love from my heart. They are mine. And they are mine forever. And they will live with me forever. And he says the same for you. If you are trusting in Christ, there is in these truths, first of all, a motive to believe. Secondly, a security to enjoy. And finally, there is, there is a hope to cherish. A hope to cherish. Oh, how we live in a broken world. How we live with death surrounding us and chaos everywhere to know to know that God is for us and that He is the ever-living God and to know that God is not for dead people He is for the living He is for the living I didn't say that God is not for people who have died I said God is not for people who are still dead those who die in the Lord only fall asleep in Jesus and wake up in His presence. All those who have died in the faith of Christ are those, all those you and I love and miss. God is for them and they are with Him. They are alive in relationship with God right now. God is not for dead people. He is for the living, for those who have died, yes, but now live again. He is for those who are absent from the body, but present with the Lord. He is for their spirits who have already passed into the paradise of God. He is for their bodies that one day will be raised up imperishable and immortal and full of glory. 
He is the God of the living. So how, how did these people respond? Matthew 22, verse 33, when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Friends, that's good, but it's not good enough. Not good enough. Such teaching is astonishing, but we need to be more than surprised by the authority and the teaching of our Lord. We need to believe it. We need to trust it. We need to live in the good of it. We need to celebrate it. We need to face all of life's disappointments and losses and injustices and fears and all the rest with a fearless confidence that God has said, I am your God and I always will be. And nothing can separate you from my love. So think of those who've lived and died at whose death you've deeply cried, who trusted Christ the crucified and knew the God who's never lied, who promised life on the other side. Here on earth they were justified, by Jesus' blood were qualified, with heaven's passport certified as citizens now classified. Till cross the river he did guide, a passage safe did provide, pearly gates opened wide. Tears wept here, forever dried. God with them identified. I am their God and will abide. The promises all verified with saints and angels unified, shining, perfect, glorified. Heaven's children, Jesus' bride, let God alone be magnified. This is what we need to take home with us. This is what we need to live with. This kind of certainty. This kind of assurance. This kind of security. I am the God of the living. I have pledged my love to you. And not even death, not even death, can separate you from that love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, oh, secure the hearts of your people. May your Spirit bear witness with our spirits that we are the children of God, that God is our God, and we are your children. Bind us, O oh Lord, in your secure love and keep us if we are grieving if we are weeping if we are mourning the loss of those who have gone on before who have loved Jesus keep us with this knowledge with this assurance that they are now living with you fill us O oh Lord fill us with faith Help us to see, help us to know, help us to believe, help us to trust, help us to live in the good of this. In Jesus' name, amen.